Well, if you recall, before we <clears throat> headed into the summer and into our uh, time of summer psalms, I mentioned that, uh, that we may also be dipping into Proverbs, and uh, Michelle remembered that. So uh, as I was putting off uh, preaching from Proverbs uh, and doing psalm after psalm after psalm, Michelle said, hey, I thought you said you were going to do Proverbs at some point. Uh, I reluctantly decided to do it because this is the last uh, Sunday that I will be preaching this summer. We leave for vacation next week, uh, and we'll be back. I'll be back in the pulpit in September. So this is my last chance uh, to preach from the book of Proverbs. Now, Proverbs is uh, what is called wisdom literature. The Bible has many different genres uh, in it. It's a you know, one book, but is comprised of many uh, different types, uh, many other books, and, and those books have different types of, of writing in them. You have uh, letters from the Apostle Paul, you have uh, law in uh, the Old Testament, you have um, gospels or uh, historical narrative in the Old Testament as well. Uh, you have poetry, which we've been looking at uh, all summer in the Psalms. And Proverbs falls into the category of wisdom. Wisdom literature is where uh, I think most of us live most of our lives. Uh, one scholar says this, wisdom literature has to do with a proper God-shaped perception and understanding of reality. Proverbs is characterized by the assumption that given the right start with the fear of the Lord, a person is able to develop a perception of the created order through observation and instruction in a way that makes for the good life, a life of wisdom and righteousness. Proverbs, being wisdom literature, uh, presents generalities Proverbs, if you want to read them, I think, correctly, uh, you read each proverb with an understanding of, in general, this is how life works. And that's why I say we live most of our lives in the realm of wisdom. We have the Bible as our revelation from God, and some things in the Bible are just uh, flat-out direct truths. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That's not a general statement of truth. That's an absolute statement. But once we get those absolute statements down and we start walking and living our lives day to day as a Christian, many of our decisions in life uh, have to do with general wisdom, which we get from Proverbs such as, uh, you know, if you get up and work hard every day and plant your crops early and reap them when you should reap them, then you will have a good crop. If you are a sluggard and decide to lay on the couch all day, you won't have a crop and you'll starve to death, things like that. Now, we all know of people who maybe are lazy and nevertheless won the lotto and have plenty of money. 
That's why Proverbs isn't a direct one-to-one correlation of reality, but in general, this is how it works. So we have questions as we go about our lives. You know, what, what job should I take? Should I marry this person or not? Should I go to the doctor now or maybe wait a little bit longer and see if things get better on their own? Uh, should I fund this charity or not? Should I continue to do that? Should I, uh, how should I talk with this person who just lost a loved one to death? All of these kinds of, of questions that we live daily with, we don't open up our Bibles and what you call lucky dip, try to find a direct answer from God or look up in the clouds and hope that God spells it out in the clouds. We think wisely and operate in that way. One Old Testament scholar sums it up by saying this, wisdom is when we outgrow our misconceptions about how life should work and we learn how God actually built life to work and work well. Wisdom is skill for living when there is no obvious rule to go by. That is what the book of Proverbs is for, gospel wisdom for complicated lives. Now, why is it that I was so hesitant to preach out of Proverbs? Well, because Uh, If you've been here uh, uh, for any length of time, you know that we tend to preach uh, expositionally. We tend to preach through books of the Bible. The only time we really take a break from that is during the summer. But even then, when you preach a psalm, you have a contained unit that you're preaching from. Proverbs, being wisdom literature, is uh, really if you ever read through it, it's kind of a scattering and smattering of wise sayings. And so it's hard to preach, I think, a a section of Proverbs to go from this verse to this verse because you're going to preach on 15 different topics. So the sermon today is more what we might call a topical sermon because it almost has to be. Uh, The topic for today, I could have chosen a hundred of them because they're all found in Proverbs. The topic today is friendship. And so our passage today is, uh, as you see on our bulletin, one verse, uh, Proverbs 18, 24. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, as always, I'd encourage you to open it up. And you want to keep it open because I'll be, you know, going through and, and looking at other various Proverbs throughout. Proverbs 18.24 says this, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Friendship is and has long been considered essential uh, to uh, human flourishing, to living a happy life. Uh, You find all throughout the writings of of ancient literature uh, this concept. St. Augustine says this, two things are essential in this world, life, which I'm sure we would all agree with, and friendship. Both must be prized highly and not undervalued. Gregory of Nazianzus, one of the the four uh, guys that really took on 
uh, Arianism and, and defended Trinitarian theology. He says this, if anyone were to ask me what is the best thing in life, I would answer friends. J.C. Ryle says this, this world is full of sorrow because it is full of sin. It is a dark place. It's a lonely place. It's a disappointing place. The brightest sunbeam in it is a friend. Friendship halves our troubles and doubles our joys. Human beings, we see right from the beginning, were created for companionship. We're created for, for friendship or um, uh, fellowship. We see this in the creation account. As you read through the creation account in Genesis, it's very interesting that, uh, as you know, if you've read it uh, in Genesis 1 and 2, you see God uh, creating something and then proclaiming it to be good. Over and over again, we see God uh, proclaiming this thing that He's created to be good. But it's, it's interesting when you read that account that the only thing that God proclaims is not good is Adam's aloneness. His isolation is proclaimed as not good in Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, what's especially interesting about that proclamation, that this is not good, is that God makes that proclamation before the fall, which means that in a world with no sin yet, uh, there was something that, in God's eyes, wasn't right, and that was that Adam was all alone, and so God fixed it. Drew Hunter, uh, he wrote an excellent book, I recommend it highly, uh, it's called Made for Friendship. He says this, the first problem in the Bible is not sin, it is solitude. What's interesting is that nowadays friendship or companionship seems to be at an all-time low. Uh, isolation and loneliness have increased. Uh, one New York Times columnist, Ezra Klein, he says this, it's impossible to deny that the U.S. has a serious loneliness problem. One 2018 report by the Kaiser Family Foundation found that 22% of all adults, almost 60 million Americans, said that they often or always felt lonely or socially isolated. Americans appear to be getting lonelier over time. From 1990 to 2021, there was a 25% point decrease in the number of Americans who reported having five or more close friends. And young people now report feeling lonelier than the elderly. It's interesting because in one sense, I think we all are more connected uh, than we've ever been. Um, you almost can't go a day without receiving a text from somebody, for instance, or an email uh, from maybe somebody that uh, in years past you maybe wouldn't talk to for uh, months at a time, and now you can have a friend in another state uh, just text you every day. So in that sense, we're more connected uh, and through social media and all of this, but on the other hand, we're claiming to be more and more isolated and lonely. So the book of Proverbs has a lot to say about friendship. Scottish pastor Hugh Black said of the book of Proverbs, there is no book 
even in classical literature, which so exalts the idea of friendship and is so anxious to have it truly valued and carefully kept as the book of Proverbs. So our text today that we're looking at most closely, Proverbs 18.24, it says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now the first thing that we have to understand about this one verse is that there are two different Hebrew words used here. Uh, if you look at the verse, one is translated companion and the other is translated friend. Those are two different words, and they mean two different things, or can mean two different things. The first one uh, that the ESV translation says, translates as companion, it's a more general word for friend, and it can mean a close friend. It has that, that uh, meaning within its semantic range. However, most often, it's used to describe a casual acquaintance, someone that you're not as close with, someone not super close to you. But the other word, translated friend, there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That is a word that literally means one who loves. And that word always describes someone with whom you have a deep and solid relationship with. So you see there's right from the beginning, uh, uh, this, this disparity being talked about. There, this is a proverb that is speaking of two different types of people. And the first group of people, this proverb is saying, really aren't true friends. This, this group that is being labeled companion, at least in this verse, when it's uh, juxtaposed to the second type of friend, the first friend labeled companion, aren't really your friends, despite how they may have appeared at one time or another. And I think what this proverb is getting at actually relates to our problem today. Because what the proverb here is getting at is that if you focus your entire life on gathering together as many Facebook friends as you can find, then you have no close friends. If you focus on the quantity of your friends rather than the quality of your friends, then you'll find yourself to have a bunch of pseudo-friends. Now, I think most of us know this. We know this by common sense. We know this by experience. And in fact, as I said, the ancient writers used to write a lot about friendship, whether they were Christians or not. When I was in uh, undergraduate uh, uh, classes uh, taking Greek uh, at the University of Maryland, uh, Baltimore County, in my Greek class, we, uh, we, we were still in the first semester and we had uh, been translating um, different uh, Greek writers. This is classical Greek, and we weren't, we weren't looking at the Bible. Uh, so we were, we were translating guys like Xenophon and things. But then uh, one day, our, my professor uh, had us all try our hand collectively at translating Aristotle, uh, who was a lot more complex. And so uh, he just threw up this really short statement by Aristotle. And we all knew enough Greek to get close. 
And so we, we put our heads together, and for about five minutes, we were all trying collectively to guess what this statement was, and we, we couldn't quite nail it. We'd get close, and then the professor would say, no, not exactly. Uh, you got that word right, but you're, it's not in the right tense or whatever. And I'll never forget the, the statement uh, when, my, when our professor uh, translated it, it was this from Aristotle, to whom friends, comma, no friend. And Aristotle, what he was getting at is to the one who has a bunch of acquaintances or pseudo-friends, that person who spent his entire life gathering those type of friends has no true friend. Proverbs talks about this. If you go through the rest of the book of Proverbs, you'll find in, in Proverbs chapter 19 that pseudo-friends abound. Proverbs 19.4, wealth brings many new friends. Proverbs 19.6, many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts. <clears throat> the word there for friend used in those two verses is the same word, which means casual friend or pseudo-friend. And what our verse here this morning, Proverbs 18.24, says, a man of many companions may come to ruin. The word there means smashed or shattered. His whole life can come undone if all he has are these pseudo-friends. And when you have these pseudo-friends, you, you may come to ruin in spite of them and just have no help. You may come to ruin because of them. Sometimes these so-called friends lead you into something that ruins your life, after which chances are they are no longer your friend. <clears throat> Those of you who are, I'd say, at least in middle school, uh, especially those of you in high school and probably college, uh, you will be um, uh, tempted to surround yourself at different times with pseudo-friends. Uh, those of us who have already gone through these uh, ages and, and stages, we, we've seen that in our own lives. Friends who, when you're doing well, friends who, as long as the party is ongoing, love to be around you, want to be your friend. As soon as, A, either you walk away from the partying or B, are taken down by the partying so that now your life has come unraveled, you'll find quickly that they're no longer your friends. Those pseudo-friends are only there when they can get something out of you. I thought of the prodigal son this week as I thought of these pseudo-friends. The prodigal son... Uh, as you know, if you remember the parable, uh, got a bunch of wealth early, took an early retirement, if you will, and left and went to a far country because the way that he wanted to live his life was not the way his father, who gave him the, uh, the money, would have wanted him to live. He left and started living a wild life filled with a lot of partying. You can imagine with that kind of money and that kind of attitude that he gathered around himself a lot of friends or so-called friends. 
They were friends while the money and the party lasted. It's interesting, though, that when he found himself in the pigsty, he had no one to turn to. Where do they all go? When his life came unraveled, when his life came to ruin, when his life was smashed and shattered, his friends were nowhere to be found. Is he opposing this? We find a friend. Opposing the pseudo-friends, or juxtaposing that, we find a true friend. The book of Proverbs defines a true friend. Here we have, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. In Proverbs 17, 17, we have the definition of a true friend. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Now, Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times. There's a debate among scholars as to whether in Proverbs 17, 17, the, the word and there, a friend loves at all times, comma, and a brother is born for adversity. There's a d- debate there as to whether that should be translated and or but, because it could be translated either way. Now, if it's translated and, as we have it in the ESV, what you have here is what I think is doing. Uh, we have uh, essentially uh, two things being compared as the same. If you have but, you have a contrast. Basically, this would be saying essentially, you know, a friend loves at all times, but a brother is born for adversity. Essentially, it'd be saying even if your best friend only goes with you so far, your brother will be with you through thick and thin your family relation. And I think for a lot of us, that's true. I think for a lot of us, especially if we're close with our family, when we hit really hard times uh, or when we're really going through something especially difficult, it is our family uh, that oftentimes gathers around us even more so than than our best friends. But, But I don't think this is what Proverbs 17, 17 is saying. I think it's essentially uh, comparing the two and making them similar, a parallelism. Because if the statement was contrasting a friend to a brother, it seems to me like it wouldn't say a friend loves at all times. It would be say, say something like a friend loves at some times, but a brother is born for adversity. But it doesn't say that. A friend, a true friend, a good friend, loves all the time. A true friend, in other words, will love you like a close family member will. And I think that this is an important verse for those of us especially who are only children, or those of us who are not close with our uh, family of origin. If, If you've become estranged with your family. If your family, as Jesus says, some of you have come to faith in Christ and been kicked out, been disowned by your family. They don't want to talk to you anymore. If that's you, then Proverbs 17, 17 is saying that God can provide for you a friend who will love you at all times as a brother when a brother sticks with you through adversity. You see, a true friend, Proverbs says, loves you when your business is booming and you're picking up the check. And he loves you when you've gone bankrupt 
and he has to pick up the check. A true friend loves you when you're driving him to the Phillies game and when he is driving you to your chemotherapy treatments. A true friend will love to sit and talk with you when you are laughing and telling her jokes because life is good. And will sit with you and talk with you and love you when you are crying your eyes out because life has taken a hard turn. That's what Scripture says a true friend is. A true friend will tell you things that you like to hear because you have a lot of things in common, and a true friend will tell you things that you need to hear, whether you like to hear them or not. Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. In other words, a true friend will tell you the hard things that you don't want to hear about yourself. Whereas an enemy, who doesn't really care about your well-being, but are only there trying to keep in good with you, will only tell you what you want to hear about yourself. It's one of the reasons why, uh, during our pastoral prayer, we oftentimes will pray that God would give us the courage here, as members Uh, to one another, members of the church, to, if need be, even rebuke a fellow member. That's hard to do. That's why we pray for it. That if we see something in in a fellow believer's life, especially someone who we're close with, that we think is ungodly, something that's unbecoming of them as being a Christian, that we would have the strength to step in and tell them what they need to hear, to be the friend that faithfully wounds Proverbs 27.9 says, oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. That's why we also pray that God would make us as a church transparent with one another, that we would be open to say, I'm really struggling here. Guys, this happened, and and I'm struggling to see how God is faithful in this, That, that we would be transparent, and then that the person who's hearing these things would be faithful to give godly counsel. Those things are hard to do. But Proverbs says that's what a true friend does. Our passage today speaks of a true friend who will love you like a close family member will, and perhaps even more so. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. We see these kind of relationships throughout the Bible. When the word friendship is just stated, if I were to say friendship, think of a friendship in the Bible. Probably a lot of you immediately go to David and Jonathan. David and Jonathan, not not brothers, not family. And yet, Scripture says that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And we see time and again where David and Jonathan are so close as friends that 
that they would give their lives for one another. In fact, Jonathan, at a time when David was really having a hard time, it, it almost flies by, but you have these two instances of David where he was really going through a hard time, fleeing from Saul for his life. And I'm wondering if David psychologically and spiritually and mentally and everything else could have even made it through this time, except that sandwiched in between those two really hard times, his friend Jonathan sought him out and strengthened him. The Scripture says that David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. He was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And what did he say to him? Do not fear, for you shall be king over Israel. Jonathan should have been the next king, and he's telling his best friend, you're going to be king instead of me. Don't fear. When we think of good friends, we think of Ruth and Naomi. What does Scripture say? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. Even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? No, my daughters. Turn back. They lifted up their voices and wept. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people. Return. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more, more also if anything but death parts me from you. That's a friend. That's someone who says, I'm with you to the end, despite that I might not have anything but you. Paul and Timothy. Paul, rotting away in a dungeon, and he writes his last letter to his friend Timothy. And he says, please do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Please, Timothy, when you come, bring the cloak that I left. Also the books. Above all, bring the parchments. Do your best to come before winter. In, in this final letter, Paul is essentially saying, Timothy, if you don't come and, and bring me a cloak, I could freeze to death. And Timothy, risking life and limb and reputation, made his way to Paul. Ruth and Jonathan and Timothy, friends who stick closer than a brother. Of course, no one defines this kind of friend more than Jesus. See, the first problem in the Bible may have been solitude, but it wasn't the only problem nor the major problem. As Scripture tells us, when sin entered in, it created a huge rift. It created huge chasms relationally. It created human-to-human -human chasms, which we see play out right away in the first murder of Cain murdering Abel. But more importantly and more monumentally, it created a human-to-God chasm. Because prior to the fall, when we read Adam and Eve and, and their relationship in Eden, they were lived in the presence of God without fear. 
We get the impression that they walked with him in the cool of the day as one would walk with a friend. That Adam and Eve were friends with God. Creations, yes. Servants, yes. But that they were friends. And once sin enters and this chasm is formed, the question the Bible presents is how can a sinful people dwell with a holy God? Now that they've been banished from Eden, the cherubim with flaming swords guarding the way back in, how do we get back to that place of having God as our friend? And in the entire Old Testament, among all of the saints of old that we read, there was only one person who was ever referred to as a friend of God, and that was Abraham. Isaiah 41, God says, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. One person. And besides Abraham, only Moses was referred to in similar terms. Exodus 33, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. But we know from Exodus, even in that section, that God says to Moses, so when we read this, that God spoke to Moses face to face, We know that it wasn't exactly that, because when Moses asks to see God's glory, God says, no one may see me and live. Moses, you are a sinner, and you cannot enter my presence and live. I will hide you in the cleft of this rock, and you will see a a refraction of my glory. So even then, Abraham and Moses, in all of Israel's history, only these two had the kind of relationship with God that could be called a friend, and even their friendship was blunted by sin, as the sacrificial system would point to. So at the time of their deaths, the question, how can a sinful people dwell with God and be his friend, had still not totally been answered. It wasn't answered until Jesus of Nazareth entered into human history. And in that moment, the question was answered by him, not by presenting a way to be a friend with God, but by being the way to be a friend of God. It was answered when the second person of the Trinity, the Word of God, who from all eternity, had a perfect eternal friendship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, gave up that privilege and took on human flesh so that He could befriend sinners. And on the night He was betrayed, John 13 applies to Judas Psalm 41.9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, 
who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And that night, when Judas walked up to Jesus, he looked Judas in the eye and said, friend, do what you've come to do. See, in in, in his life, Jesus was called many things. He was called Lord. He was called God. He was called the Son of God. He was called the Holy One of Israel. But his enemies called him something else. They looked at him and sneering at him said, look at him, a friend of sinners. They thought they were deriding him, but little did they know they were defining him. For that's what he was. For the Samaritan woman at the well, for the sinful woman who washed his feet with her tears, for Zacchaeus, the tax collector. In fact, for that matter, every single person he befriended, they were a sinner. Because that was his mission. His mission was to be the friend that sticks closer than a brother. And after Judas had gone out into the night to find those who would help him arrest Jesus, Jesus looked at the others, the ones who were left, the ones who were not going to betray him. And he said to them, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. No longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. The ones who remained, the ones he called friends, would either deny or abandon him that night. And so in that sense, Jesus became not only the friend that sticks closer than a brother, but he also became a man of many companions who was brought to ruin, who was smashed, who was shattered. And why? Why did he take on Proverbs 18.24? So that you and I, fellow sinner, can finally have God as our friend. We can finally have as our friend the friend who loves at all times, always. If you are in Christ, then he is your friend at all times and forever. Jesus said, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And Paul, as he faced certain death in that dungeon, was able to say to Timothy, Do your best to come to me soon. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. I can't even believe he adds this. May it not be charged against them. Here's a man awaiting death, locked in a dungeon, and he says, everyone's abandoned me, but may it not be charged against them. How Christ-like is that? But his next statement is this. But even though everyone deserted me, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, and the Lord will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. 
Paul alone in a dark dungeon was not alone because he had Jesus as his friend. Is Jesus your friend? Is Jesus your friend? Ask yourself that question today as you leave. The way you answer that question is the way you would answer that question about any friend. Friends are people you desire to spend time with. Do you desire to spend time with Jesus? Do you long to be with Him? Because in the end, that's what heaven will be. In the end, heaven will be spending all of eternity with Jesus, your friend, and with all of his other friends that he has made friends throughout the ages. If that's where you long to be, then friend, I think you are a friend of Jesus. And if that is you, rejoice, because in him you have truly found the friend who sticks closer than a brother. Jonathan Edwards said, death may deprive of dear friends, but it can't deprive us of this, our best friend. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are so grateful for this word. We are so grateful that you have provided for us as we walk this road home to you, good friends. And we are so thankful, especially, that you've provided for us the friend who sticks closer than a brother. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he was our best friend, is our best friend, and will always be our best friend. We thank you that we will be with him for all eternity. It's in his name we pray. Amen.